Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Forestine. And I'm Damian Gardner. It's Thursday, November 2nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. When is a failed trial not a failed trial? Biotech consultant Frank David joins us to explain the wild world of subgroup analyses and how to discern science from spin. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including the latest twist in the disruptive therapeutic saga and the retirement of a biotech stalwart. All that afterward from our sponsor. With a focus on genetics and genomic research, Regeneron Genetics Center is revolutionizing the industry with new discoveries. Today, I'm joined by Tim Thornton, Senior Director of Statistical Genetics at RGC, to learn more about the future of genome sequencing and a white paper on the yield of genetic association signals from genomes, exomes, and imputation. We really wanted to understand what are the implications for these different approaches? How does it impact your ability to discover new genetic signals? Tim, where can listeners learn more about Regeneron Genetics Center? The best place is Regeneron.com. So Adam, you dug into the Sarepta News this week, which has, I think, caught the biotech world's attention yet again. Tell us what happened with Sarepta's uh, latest clinical trial data. Yeah, you know, I sort of step back from this, guys. And, you know, reporters like us, like we we thrive on chaos and drama, twists and turns, right? It's like what we like to do. Um, you know, when things are boring, uh, our job is boring. And, and Sarepta is just one of those stories that just seems to uh, <laughs> just, you know, it's never boring and it's always something going on. And, and you're right, Allison, you know, this time, we, you know, we were sort of waiting for this widely anticipated phase three uh, confirmatory study for its uh, gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And, and the results came out Monday afternoon and lo and behold, um, the study failed. Uh, they had tested the gene therapy in a group of boys with Duchenne ages four to seven and um, the study did not meet its primary endpoint compared to a, a placebo, and that was measuring certain measures of like muscle muscle function in in these boys over time. Um, now, of course, this also being Sarepta, uh, and, and uh, as Frank David will tell us later, you know there was subgroup analyses in the study, and so it looks like. Um, the therapy did a little bit better in younger boys. Those those are boys ages four and five. Uh, worse in in the older boys uh, six and seven. And 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 then there were uh, secondary endpoints, other measures of a benefit where um, the 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 drug seems to have worked. And so taken in totality, that's one of those words that biotech people like to use. The totality of the data, uh, according to Sarepta, is is sufficient. And strong enough and persuasive enough to uh, to file with the FDA and to get final approval for this gene therapy. As we remember, this this was already on the market. Uh, the FDA had granted this accelerator conditional approval already earlier this year. Um, and there will be a lot of debate, uh, and there already is a lot of debate about uh, whether confirm whether this confirmatory study, you know, which can technically failed, whether it is enough to you know, to expand. The label, uh, you know, right now it is approved only for those four and five year old boys, and and whether whether these data justify expanding it to include treatment of older boys with Duchenne. 
Which feels like the worst kind of setup for a debate on my end, because, I mean, as we've seen over time, it feels like it's come down to the biotech community saying, this trial doesn't work, you know, pointing to all the flaws in the data and and in the subgroup analyses and saying, no, we need to keep testing this or like this drug needs to, you know, not be fully approved. And then you've got these families on the other side who are desperate for anything to help their young boys and the company who say, no, we've got to give it a shot. Look at what we're seeing in front of our very eyes about how our children are reacting. It kind of sets up, I, I what are the worst kind of debates in my mind in our industry? Yeah, and it, it brings up, and Damien, you know, you and I know this from, from Alzheimer's coverage, right? It just brings up the whole issue of how the FDA handles this kind, these kinds of situations, how lenient and flexible uh, they need to be or want to be. True. And as it feels like is so often the case and now has been the case for going on a decade, things are just different when Sarepta Therapeutics is involved. We don't have to relitigate it, but the company won what was a very polarizing approval for its first Duchenne treatment way back in 2016 that involved internal debate, dissent, and eventually kind of overruling within the FDA. Fast forward all the way to the development of this gene therapy, which at least mechanistically seemed like it was more likely to actually benefit kids with this disease than perhaps Sarepta's earlier medicines. But Adam, as you and our colleague Jason Mass reported, there was internal debate, dissent, and a final overruling within the FDA that led to the accelerated approval we were talking about. And then that sets in motion this complicated, I mean, ostensibly, not ostensibly, headline negative clinical trial, albeit with cause for debate within the the details of the data to where it's both, I was going to say it's kind of deja vu, but it really feels like just an escalation of the conversation around this company, this disease, and the FDA that we've been having for, you know, there'll be people listening to this, the better part of their adult lives have been spent on this, this issue. And so it's just like round nine, it feels like of a very, very familiar, contentious, and I think, you know, can't be understated important conversation that's had about how medicines are regulated in this country. Yeah. I mean, it should be noted that Sarepta is a company that uh, generates uh, over a billion dollars a year in in drug sales uh, on an annualized basis from drugs and, and now gene therapy uh, for rare inherited diseases, upon which they, they're all conditional approvals, right? They, they have never uh, successfully completed a confirmatory study. Now, some of those studies are still underway, uh, and the verdict uh, is still out there. But it is—it's kind of remarkable. I can't think of another company that is in a situation like like Sarepta. I have to say, it personally annoyed me a bit. Um, the you know messaging that kind of went out with these clinical trial results. You know, the the primary endpoint being this. Um, I think it was kind of a. a collection of various um uh you yeah, know, data called points star. called yeah. the north yeah. star which right. you know basically surrupted in the aftermath said well you know the north star isn't sensitive enough to capture you know what's happening with our you know the the boys taking this medication in this trial but they they designed this study with input from the FDA. There, I I don't imagine that the FDA you know has you know strong armed Sarepta into choosing this endpoint to to design a study in a specific way and then after the fact, you know, point to the design of the study 
as the problem and, you know, kind of try to argue that the medication should be approved, it, you know, despite the flaws in the design of the study seems just baffling to me on 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 some levels. I, I don't know how that happens. And I, I don't imagine that an advisory committee will take that, um, you know, lightly in its consideration of of an expanded approval. Yeah, you know, I, I've been covering Sarepta for a long time and and more, more recently covering it with our colleague, Jason Mass. And, you know, Jason, uh, for reporting this week, and we talked to and we talked to a lot of uh, physicians who treat boys with Duchenne. And, you know, they have a mixed view. I mean, obviously, they're disappointed in the fact that the study technically failed. And, and you know, they all want more definitive data. Um, you know, when we asked them about, you know, well, you know, what about this argument that the North Star test uh, you know, is a little bit un- insensitive and maybe hard to pick up changes over a relatively short period of time. And there are other, maybe there are other markers that are better. And, you know, there's some sympathy and there's some agreement that that, that is true. Uh, and it just sort of muddies the waters a little bit. But, I, you know, Allison, to your point, you're right in that, you know, Sarepta has spent a lot of time um, emphasizing the North Star as sort of the best way to measure benefit in these boys with Duchenne for the gene therapy. Um, and now, of course, they're saying, well, you know, there's these other measures that might be better or, you know, there's, you know, sort of making, you know, I don't want to say excuses, but, you know, sort of offering reasons why the study didn't meet its endpoint. But again, this is Sarepta. And so we, you know, not to belabor this conversation, but, you know, they will be filing these data with the FDA. They will be seeking uh, final approval and and they want to expand the label. Like I said, this is a, a treatment right now that's only available for boys four to five. Um, they want to in- they want to expand that to boys six and seven. They even want to expand this to treatment to boys who are already in wheelchairs. Um, that uh, you know, that, so that's even a larger a larger group of boys with Duchenne. Uh, and we will wait and see what the FDA says. Um, and if you know, it's Sarepta, so there's gonna, there's going to be more twists and turns. And uh, I I feel like I have a lot more Sarepta reporting in my future. Well, can I throw it to Damien um, to go into news about the the surprise retirement of somebody uh, long known in the biotech industry? And I have to say this news last night elicited the most classic Damien response uh, to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, where uh, Damien referenced a Serge Gainsbourg song in, <laughs> in uh, combination with this news coming out, which led you Adam a, and I to- You mean to, an obscure French composer? You mean Damien an obscure some French, sort of weird yeah, musician, cultural reference? Which led, which led Adam and I to then uh, start singing Zuby Zuby Zoo uh, many, many times and just uh, devolve into a uh, random collection of, uh, you know, 60s French pop. Uh, <laughs> Damien, tell us about uh, JJ's retirement. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm horrified to learn that Serge Gansberg has become obscure with the passage of time. It's <laughs> difficult for me to process. But in this specific case, yes, Jean-Jacques Bianame, the longtime CEO of Biomarin Pharmaceutical, he was there for 18 years. Uh, the company said last night that he will retire on December 1st, ending that 18-year tenure, which I think kind of came as a surprise, although perhaps one of those things that he is 70 years old, he's been there for 18 years, the numerals, when you assemble them, it's not strange at all that he would retire. I think what caught me and I think other people by surprise is just that he is so so part of the biotech firmament and so indistinguishable in my mind from Biomarin. 
that the notion that he would ever retire, I think, kind of came as a shock, despite the fact that that is a thing that human beings do when they reach a certain age. Um, I think a lot of that, what put him, I should say, as part of the firmament is not only Biomarin's success over time, gradual success, building a small company into a profitable entity by focusing on uh, orphan and, and extremely rare diseases, which this seems silly now, but 18 years ago when he started, it, there was debate as to whether that was a practicable business model. And Biomarin is definitely one of the reasons that it is now perceived not only as such, but as you know, one of the cornerstones of biotech is, is rare diseases. But also because he is a guy who says what he thinks, um, which is can be rare among CEOs of publicly traded companies of any sort, but certainly within the drug industry. And so I think JJ, as he's affectionately or even unaffectionately uh, referred to, is occupies a big space in, in this world in, in large part because of that being unafraid to say what he thinks often about other companies and their data and their competing medicines and about Biomarin's place within biotech. I mean, Adam, I think maybe there's a particular affection or, well, yeah, affection for him among reporters because so many CEOs are so often, frankly, and understandably quite boring. And JJ was rarely that. Yeah, when I when I think of uh, companies developing rare uh, orphan diseases, and, you know, sort of pioneers in that, I think of Genzyme, and I think of Biomarin, those two companies, uh, and I think uh, you know, obviously Genzyme was ultimately acquired by Sanofi um, or Sanofi, I thought we however, however this. we're going <laughs> to say that, um, and then there is Biomarin who. Yeah, you know, Byron, which, you know, again, it's what's interesting about what's funny about Byron. I said this on Twitter, like, you know, that he's retiring without selling the company. And I didn't mean that in a mean way. But it's just kind of funny that every year, sort of in the beginning of the year, right, everyone puts together their lists of companies that will be acquired in, you know, this year. And Byron always seems to be on that list. Um, you know, again, partly because of their success in developing drugs for orphan diseases, um, and then they and then they end up not being acquired. So I, I don't know whether and you know there were ever any serious efforts to to uh, to sell the company, but um, you know, again, they are they are one of them. You know, really pioneers in that world, and 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 JJ deserves a lot of credit for that. And and like Damien, like you said, I did sort of laugh because yeah, he's opinionated. Maybe you know you can call him sort of arrogant. Um, I don't know if is that a sort of a French thing. You know, I think of Pascal Sorio at AstraZeneca also being somewhat in the same in the same vein. You know, I can't comment on the national identity of uh, the proud country of France. Um, it is interesting, though, you know, him leaving Biomarin at this exact moment, because, you know, to your point about them being a perpetual perceived acquisition target, their stock has been pretty flat uh, in recent years as the company has achieved sustainable profitability, which was a long held goal and not necessarily an easy feat in biotech. But that gets to something we've talked about on this podcast before, that in the eyes of Wall Street, kind of like the takeout thesis trumps everything else. So as Biomarin has become a better business, a more sustainable business, it has somewhat paradoxically affected its valuation on the street because it seems less likely to get acquired as a result. But at the same time, JJ's retirement coincided with Biomarin's earnings, which included a pretty substantial cut in guidance for the uh, the revenue for a medicine that they've spent a long time trying to develop, which is a gene therapy for hemophilia A. Basically, it's not selling as well as both the company and the market thought that it would, which gets to something I think we talked about in the live episode, which is that just because you have a new and very effective technology that even could be functionally curative for a medicine, 
you are not guaranteed a warm reception by the market for all sorts of reasons to do with the complication of our healthcare system, but especially in this case, the presence of non-curative but effective and available medicines that patients, in this case with hemophilia, are already on. So it's kind of interesting that closing the chapter on JJ's tenure opens this new one for Biomarin, which is that with that sustainable profitability comes this kind of like focus on commercialization. The company has kind of grown up from plucky, punchy, underdog biotech with, you know, quotable, occasionally arrogant CEO to now, I don't know, just big drug maker. I guess not not dissimilar to sort of the end stage of Genzyme in many ways. So it'll be interesting to see how this goes forward. <laughs> uh, to note, uh, Alexander Hardy from Genentech is going to become the new CEO of Biomarin. So I was actually going to ask the two of you, I mean, based on, you know, your background knowledge, uh, I don't know to what extent of Alexander Hardy, what do you, I mean, what do we anticipate for the future of Biomarin? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up, Allison, because obviously we're talking about JJ's departure, but you know they have also named a new CEO from outside, and like you said, Alexander Hardy, uh, currently the CEO of Genentech, so he's leaving Genentech, which obviously is a, the big unit of Roche, uh, to, to uh, I guess, move up north, uh, Barman's up in Marin County, um, to take over there. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think he's a, you know, I think Alexander Hardy is generally viewed favorably by the street, uh, by Wall Street, and um so, you know, a lot of experience. I think he has something like, uh, you know, 30 years of industry experience. So they certainly are getting uh, another sort of another biopharma veteran to run uh, Biomarin. And, you know, and this is a company, Damien, you mentioned, you know, that, you know, one of their one of the criticisms of Biomarin for a long time was that they developed all these drugs, but they weren't making any money. Uh, you know, they were they were sort of losing money every quarter and every year. And, and now they've kind of uh, evolved and grown into a company that does does bring profits every quarter, you know, fairly consistently. Um, and so, you know, the challenge for someone like Hardy is to, is to continue to grow that company, uh, you know, both with new products, but also, uh, you know, showing profitability. Because I think at, at some point, you know, sort of investors want to see that all of the, the investment in or the development of these drugs, you know, it does pay off. Uh, you have to sort of start making money. And, and Biomarin has done that. And so we'll, uh, we'll see uh, what the future looks like. Hope has a tendency of springing eternal in biotech, where even bad news gets framed as good news that is simply hiding behind a few missed goals in a clinical trial. Yeah, time and again, a biotech company will miss the primary endpoint in a pivotal study, but point to a smaller group of patients or a subset of patients for whom the drug in question seemed to work. If we simply did the whole thing again, but enrolled just those patients, the thinking goes, we could snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. This kind of thing is usually met with skepticism, but biotech history has plenty of examples of powerful medicines that needed one or two clinical do-overs before proving their worth. So how do you know which subgroup analyses are actually telling you something and which are a waste of time? Frank David is a writer, strategic advisor, and professor of the practice of biotech at Tufts University, who has just written a report for STAT on this very topic, and he joins us now to talk about it. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a huge fan. So Frank, I'm a huge fan of yours. I feel like you and I are like fellow ordained ministers in the church of the holy shit, look at that crazy <laughs> subgroup analysis. <laughs> um, so let's starting from like 30,000 feet. What are subgroup analyses and what purpose do they serve in clinical trials? Sure. So the basic idea is 
you run a study with some population that you've recruited and some endpoint. And uh, in many cases, unfortunately, that study doesn't come out positive. And then you start looking at subsets of the population. So you might look by gender or you might look by stage of disease or you may look by comorbidities, trying to find out whether there was a particular group of patients where the drug might actually show some sort of glimmer of activity. And this happens broadly in two scenarios in biotech. One is when you're doing it in the context of a phase two trial. Um, and the other is if you're doing it in the context of a phase three trial. And in a phase two trial, I think it's kind of understood that the phase two trial inherently is somewhat seeking signals and trying to figure out whether this is a real drug or not. Um, whereas in a phase three trial, that's really meant for regulatory approval. So then when it fails and you do a subgroup analysis, then it brings up these questions about, well, could I submit this subgroup analysis to the FDA as is, or should I run yet another big and expensive phase three trial to try to, as you said, rescue uh, rescue it from the jaws of defeat? Anyone with even a passing interest in biotech has probably seen a press release explaining that a negative study isn't actually negative because the drug worked for some patients. I mean, we we might have seen such a, such a press release earlier this week. <laughs> as you point out in your report, uh, not all subgroup analyses make a lot of sense. And, and as you just said, you know, there are kind of different scenarios um, where they are used. Could you give us a sense of, you know, the range and, and how that translates to reliability of these analyses? Sure. I mean, I think one way to look at this is to look at what the hypothesis is behind the subgroup analysis. Um, so on one extreme end, you might have a subgroup a subgroup that's really patently absurd in terms of having any relationship to the drug. The classic case the FDA cites often in these situations is an old study where the investigators to actually criticize the whole practice of subgroup analyses, looked at their data based on what astrologic sign the patients were born under and found that the certain outcomes differed depending on whether patients were born under Gemini and Libra versus other uh, astrologic signs. And that's kind of, that's silly, but it makes a good point, which is that there are some of these where it just doesn't make any sense. And then on the other extreme, you could have a situation where you have a targeted therapy, for example, and you tried it in all comers, thinking that, well, maybe even the patients who don't have this target highly expressed um, might show an effect. And then it doesn't, but then you cut the data and you say, well, actually, the patients who had this marker or had high levels of that marker, they do seem to respond. So I think those are probably the two extreme poles of subgroup analyses. Well, and as, as we said before, you know, this stuff is generally met with skepticism and with good reason. But and I think the targeted therapy analogy or the targeted therapy example um, is a good point because sometimes the optimistic biotech executives telling you that the bad news is actually good if you just squint end up being right. So I don't know, what are some examples of subgroup findings that turned out to be legit, whether in the eyes of the FDA or in informing a later clinical trial that, you know, eventually demonstrated the benefits of a given drug? One of the things that I found pretty amazing and surprising when I 
did the background research for this report was there are really very few cases that you can find of a phase three trial where it failed and then the sponsor identified a subgroup, ran a redo in that subgroup, and then it succeeded. So that by itself actually is is a bit of a reality test on this whole idea. But that said, there are some examples where um, where this strategy has worked out. So immunogens Ella here, for example, is an antibody drug conjugate that targets folate receptor alpha. Uh, they initially ran their phase three study selecting patients whose tumors had greater than 50% expression of FR alpha. That study failed. They went back and looked at the data and said, well, actually, the ones who had the higher levels, so greater than 75% expression, actually seemed to respond. They ran the, a repeat phase three just in that great, greater than 75% expression group, and that did succeed. So it can happen. Yeah, I think you make a really good point about, you know, there has to be sort of a, a biologic rationale or, you know, something logical where you'd want to do a subgroup analysis that makes sense. Um, so how would a discerning biotech person, you know, make heads or tails of a given claim about a negative study? Like I said, we see this all the time. So what are some of the tips uh, for navigating, uh, you know, clinical trial spin and, and, and sort of seeing through that? So I think first, going back to my earlier point, is to go in inherently being pretty skeptical. This rarely pans out. Uh, when it comes to phase three trials that fail and then a company tries to do a redo. Doesn't mean, you, you know, miracles do happen. So anything's possible. But, uh, but I think it's important to just be realistic. Besides that, I tend to look at a few things. First of all, the odds that the finding actually could be repeated, um, are related to the number of hypotheses that were tested. So if you see a study where it looks like they tested all manner of different subgroups, let's stratify by age, let's stratify by gender, let's stratify by phase of the moon that they were born under, et cetera, um, and then finally eked one out that looked positive, um, that's an extremely bad sign. And you can actually do a little bit of a shortcut and you can divide the kind of classic p-value threshold of 0.05 by the number of tests that were run. And in your head, that can be a proxy for the p-value threshold that you should be expecting if n tests were run. It would be 0.05 over n is sort of the new threshold. So that's one, that is one thing to look at. I think another thing to look at is the um, is the nature of some of these subgroups, and specifically the ones that are generated by splitting up continuous variables like age, for example. We see a lot of studies where the claim is that it worked in patients over 50 or over 55 or over 60, and often that age, it seems logical because... It's a nice round number. It's a multiple of five. But actually, it's somewhat arbitrary. Why should a drug work better in 56-year-olds than in 54-year-olds? doesn't inherently make much sense. Um, and that's a common situation and, again, one that is somewhat concerning. And then the third piece goes back to what we were talking about before, which is inherent biological and clinical plausibility, trying to put this case realistically on that spectrum between uh, 
astrologic signs on one end and biologic hypothesis on the other. I think actually the biggest problem that shows up there is we, all of us, including me, are very susceptible to just coming up with a good story. And I think we see this a lot with drugs where the claim is that it works differently in patients who are more advanced disease or less advanced disease, for example. And we, one can see both of those examples, um, in, in almost every month in biotech where a drug doesn't work and they say, well, but it worked in patients that had more severe symptoms. Or then you'll see the opposite. Well, we had to treat earlier and we looked at only the patients who are earlier. And that is very, uh, alluring as an idea. Um, and it kind of taps into, I think, this desire to just have a good story. But um, but it's very easy to come up with these stories after the fact. So I think that's one of the pitfalls that people fall into is getting sucked in by a good story. So Frank, you know, you mentioned that we can see these kinds of subgroup analyses, you know, in, in phase two mid-stage studies or in phase three studies, yeah. you know, meant for registration, uh, you know, data that would be submitted to the FDA. How generally does the FDA um, think about subgroup analyses? Yeah, FDA finds them no bueno. Definitely uh, not a good, not a good thing. Uh, Rick Pazder has a line that gets quoted often where he says subgroup analyses are basically like shooting an arrow and then drawing the target around it after the fact. Um, if you look at the FDA comments on the ADCOM for uh, oncopeptides drug, which was um, last year, I'm going to get the timing wrong. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. If you look at the subgroup someone, analysis... Someone Google it real quick. Yeah. If you look <laughs> at the subgroup analysis from oncopeptides drug Pepaxto, where they were basically making this argument, FDA came back with a litany of reasons. It's actually a great masterclass on how the FDA views post hoc subgroup analyses. Um, they, are, they are not fans at all. We are all going to look very foolish when the first accelerated approval based on astrological sign is granted and uh, regulatory frameworks are upended. <laughs> well, there, you know, there is this weird case um, that I mentioned in the report of, uh, of Bidel, which is this drug that was approved uh, specifically for African-American patients uh, with heart failure. And it was based on a subgroup analysis. And amazingly, they ran the, the follow-up study and the follow-up study specifically in African-American patients actually worked. And it is, it is a weird example in the literature of, um, of a successful post-hoc, of a subgroup analysis that led to a successful redo. And to this day, there's debate about what that means and whether it matters. Well, Frank, thanks for, for coming on and uh, explaining this all to us. I think we all needed the explainer this week. Um, Frank's report is available on the STAT website, statnews.com. Please purchase it. It's a wonderful resource, and we appreciate you taking your time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what your favorite subgroup analysis is. 
You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.